Thank you, Jeff and musicians. It's good to see you this morning here, the balcony and down here. Good to have you online with us today as well. I invite you to take your copy of God's Word, and let me encourage you, always have a copy of God's Word with you. I know you might have it electronically, and that's okay. Uh, I like to feel the pages, you know, because I'm old now. But uh, have a copy of God's Word with you, and uh, turn, turn, if you would, to 1 John chapter 3. It will be in verse 4, beginning there, uh, and we'll read down to verse 6. Uh, this morning, as we move through this letter, this epistle that John wrote, we're reminded that he wrote to Christians. He wrote to save people, uh, which helps set the context for us this morning. Look at verses 4 to 6, and we'll uh, see as the Lord uh, gives us some thoughts here. John said, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness, and sin is lawlessness. And you know that he was manifested, that would be Jesus. You know that Jesus was manifested to take away our sins, and in him there is no sin. Verse 6, whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. When I was in the military, I had the opportunity to work with many different kinds of people, to put it kindly. Uh, one, one time I was working with this fellow, and we were officers. It was after I was commissioned, and um, he was quite the fellow, I would say. He uh, lived a very um, aggressive lifestyle, immoral. Um, he was quite the womanizer. He was living large. He was a young fella, a young officer, and uh, officers get paid a little better. And so he was taking full advantage of his, of his income to live his lifestyle. And so as I got to know him one day, I uh, began to talk to him about Jesus. And uh, I didn't get too far into talking with him about Christ when he said, uh, I'm a Christian. And then he looked at me and he said, why do you look shocked? I said, well, I said, your, uh, your lifestyle, the way you live, the things that you choose to do, um, your willingness to defy God's word and his commands, your willingness to do what, if you're a Christian, what you know is contrary to the nature of God, cast a doubt on your verbal testimony. I said, I, I told him, I said, only you and God know if you're saved, but I said, your life choices and your testimony tell a different story from your verbal testimony, and so it causes confusion. Now, I'm sure you've met someone like that, or unfortunately in our lives, maybe there was a time in our lives when our testimony wasn't all that it should be. And so what I want us to think about for just a few minutes this morning and what John touches on here is the Christian nature. If we're saved, uh, we have this, this nature, if you will. We have this, this testimony, this lifestyle. Now let's, now let's do a little warning here first. We're not saying that a man or woman is saved based on what they do because we know salvation is not by works, it's by faith alone in Jesus Christ plus nothing. We're simply saying that 
if in a person's life, and we can do our own self-examination, if in our life or in a person's life, there's no evidence of a new nature, no evidence of having met Jesus Christ, then we may not really be a child of God. Because a person who's saved and a person who is a child of God has a new nature. The Holy Spirit created a new person inside of them. They became a child of God, born into the, into the family of God and indwelt by the Holy Spirit. And so if there are no uh, indicators in the life of a person that God has made a change in them, then the fact is they may very well not be a child of God at all. Now, the context of this, of what John's saying, remember he's writing to Christians, and there's an important term, there's, there's two important things that I want us to remember before we look at those verses in particular. And the first one is this, throughout this passage and really throughout this letter, John continues to talk about abiding in Christ. Abiding in Christ. For a Christian, abiding in Christ. In fact, look in your Bible back to chapter 2, right? Just go back a page or up a page. Chapter 2, verses 28 and 29. Listen to what John said about abiding in Christ. He said, and now little children, Christians, he's writing to Christians, abide in him, abide in Christ, that when he appears, we may have confidence and not be ashamed before him at his coming. Verse 29, if you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. And here's the connection. Abiding in Christ as a Christian equals lifestyle. Abiding in Christ as a Christian equals choices, equals testimony abiding in Christ. Now you might say, well, I thought I was already in Christ. I got saved and, and it says I'm in Christ. Yes, you are. But what does it mean to abide in Christ? So let me give you four things real quick that I believe it means to abide in Christ for a Christian. And number one is this, we abide in Christ through his word. You see, the Bible is about God and the whole New Testament is about Jesus and it's about Christians and living for Jesus. And if we read the Bible, it helps us abide in Christ. Now, what does the word abide mean? Maybe we ought to start there. It means to stay somewhere. It means to hang out there. It means to dwell there. Now, we can get saved and move away from Jesus. No, let's abide in him and we do it with his word. Secondly, we abide in Christ through prayer. Do we communicate with God? I, I can almost tell you, I, I could all, if I were a gambling man, we could bet money on it. A Christian who's off the reservation, a Christian who's out in the world and living, living like they're lost, they're not reading the Bible and they don't have a prayer life. I can pretty much tell you those two things are for sure. Okay? They're, they're, they're not reading the Bible because you know what happens when you read the Bible as a Christian? You get convicted and God speaks to you. And if you're praying, it's really, really difficult to pray and talk to God when you're living in sin because you really don't want to hang out with God because you know you're not right, okay? So the Bible prayer. Here's another one that Christians, that Christians don't think is very important sometimes, and it is, it is fellowship in the community of the church. Now, granted, COVID has made that challenging lately, and I'm thankful for those who watch online, and we have many who watch online. But the community of Christian, of Christian fellowship is essential, to abiding in Christ. We encourage one another. We hold one another accountable. And then finally, the Holy Spirit. Our Christian walk is directly connected to, our, to the degree of our surrender to the Holy Spirit in our lives. Are we saying to God, yes, you're God and I'm not and I'll do whatever you want me to do. God, I'll live the way you want me to live. God, give me victory over the weak areas of my life. Are we asking God to do that? So listen, the practical perfection in this life 
is, is not sinless perfection that John's speaking of here, but what it is is it's, it's attending to more practical righteousness as we abide in Christ. It is an ever continual uh, attendance to that. So number one, the context of, the, of what John says here, and this is important when we get to verse six, by the way, the context of what John's saying is, is are we abiding in Christ? And secondly, it is in our relationship to God. What did we learn last week? So you didn't know there was gonna be a quiz today. There is, 10 questions. No, we learned last week that if you're, if you're born again, if you're saved, you're adopted into the family of God and you are a child of God. And we learned last week that, that when we become a child of God, it is natural for us to take on the characteristics of our heavenly father. It is a normal process that as we become a child of God by faith in Jesus Christ, that we grow and that we become more like Jesus every day. And so we take on the nature. John said in 1 John 3, 3, back in verse 3, and everyone who has this open and purifies himself just as he's pure. In other words, we know that Jesus is coming and he wants us to be like him. And so we purify ourselves. Again, the conclusion is intuitive. If you think about what John's saying here, those who are the children of God are expected to look like him. Let's go back to my friend in the Navy. I start talking to him. He goes, oh, yeah, man, I'm a Christian. I'm with you. He didn't look much like Jesus, not the Jesus in the Bible. He didn't look much like anybody who, who had a walk with Jesus. So what conclusion can we come to? Well, number one, I don't know if the man's saved or not, because only God knows that. However, his life and his testimony did not give any evidence that he really knew Jesus. Now, I don't know about you. And I hope that someone watching or one of you is not of the opinion that, well, I'm saved and so, you know, my lifestyle really doesn't matter. No, because how we choose to live usually is an indication of where our heart is. And I certainly wouldn't hang your eternity on the fact that you can live in sin and do whatever you want to do, because that is usually an indication that a person is not saved at all. So if that's the way you feel about it, the Apostle Paul said that's anathema and we should never be that way. So I would ask you to in, examine your own heart. Let me put it in this context real quick and we'll look at what John said here. In the, in, in the world, there are two spiritual families and you're in one of them. There's only two. The first one is the family of God. If you're a born again child of God, you are in the family of God. You are a child of the God who created the universe. You are in his family, he adopted you and that's where you wanna be. All who are in the family of God will bear some resemblance to the Father. Not all the same, but some, some resemblance to the Father. There will be some evidence in our life that we know God. Now, the other option is that you are a child of Satan. And that bothers some people. I'm not a child of Satan. Well, the Bible says if you're not a child of God, there's only one left. And it says Satan is the father of this world. He's the father of lies. He's the beginner of sin. And those who are lost by default are in, are in the spiritual family of Satan. You say, well, how do we know that? Most lost people demonstrate the nature of Satan. Wouldn't you agree? Most lost people live in the way that Satan would direct the world to live. They live in open sin, they live in rebellion against God, they don't, they don't care about the Bible. I was telling some men out there today, I was reading uh, an article uh, that a man wrote who doesn't like Christians, and he said, Christians are like the Taliban. He said, and then he said, specifically Southern Baptists in the South. 
I said, man, you're getting personal now. What in the world? He, uh, now listen, I don't know the man's spiritual condition, but I could guess. I could take a guess because I've read other things that he's written. He, he demonstrates in his life all the fruit, all the lifestyle of the one whom he follows, which certainly would be, would be satanic as he rules over this world. So now listen, here it is. And we're gonna look at what John said here because he's gonna define sin. He's gonna define what the two groups look like. If you're saved today, and I pray that you are, if you have a relationship with Jesus Christ, you know you've been saved by faith in him, there should be some degree of evidence in your life of moving toward Christ's likeness. Everybody follow me? If you're lost today, if you are without Christ, there will be some degree of evidence that you look like Satan and his movement in the world. Now, some people will go, I'm a good person, I'm not that bad. Everybody's not as bad as they could be. But you will have some degree of likeness to Satan because he's the one who rules this world. Can I encourage you right here before we look at these verses in depth? Get in the right family. Come to Jesus and get in the family of God because that's the one that's gonna take you into eternity. That relationship with God's the one that'll save your soul. That one will give you a home in heaven forever. Don't, don't, don't follow this world on the broad road and the broad gate that leads to destruction. Now, John defines for us sin. Look at verse four. And these are some great verses. He said, whoever commits sin also commits lawlessness. And sin is lawlessness. Well, the first definition of sin, the first part of his definition here is that sin is breaking the law of God. Breaking the law of God. We're all guilty of that. We've all broken God's law. But think about this. God's law is connected to his will and God's law is connected to his character. God's law is connected to his will because he's the creator and he has the right as God to make the rules. His laws, whether they be moral laws, the Ten Commandments, or, or the laws that we read in the New Testament about loving one another and the things that he says are for our good. They're not to harm us. They're to make life all that God designed it to be. So to sin against God is to break his laws, to defy him, to defy his will, to turn against what he tells us to do to break God's law in every sense of the, of the word or the phrase is to exercise our will in defiance to God's will. And that's sin, and it's always sin. Now, how is sin an offense against the character of God? Well, number one, he is God and he's holy and he's righteous and he's perfect and his laws are expressions of his holiness. And so when we break his laws and we break his commands, we're actually offending his nature as God. Let me give you four examples real quick. Any kind of deception, any kind of lie, untruth, dishonesty, any intent to deceive, any intent to be dishonest is an offense against God's nature. Why? Because he is truth. He's truth. And he tells us to be true. So if we choose to be anything but absolutely true, it's an offense against God. It's sin. How about this? Any kind of hate, envy, greed, intent to harm someone, revenge, bullying, all those things are offensive to God. Why? Because he is love. And God loves us with a passion and he expects us to love one another. Man, I am convicted of that every day. I don't know about you. Because some people are hard to love. I mean, they just make it difficult. They just make it hard. They're mean and ugly and they say bad things and they do bad things. 
It makes you want to hurt them. Well, if you feel like hurting them, that's not loving them, right? So, you know, we're ta talking to Andy one time. Yeah, in my mind, I've killed you already, so stop, you know? And that's sin. I mean, because if I think it, if I think it then, it's, then it's sin. But, think it, but when we do that, when we do that, even as Christians, we offend the character of God. Why? Because he's love. And then I think back, well, God ever, had every right to judge me. God had every right to kill me, but he didn't. He saved me. So, so if, we, if we don't love like him, we've offended him. We've broken his law. We've offended his character. How about this? Any injustice in the world is an offense to God. Any injustice, anything that's not fair, anything that's, that's, uh, that's nefarious. Why? Because he's just and holy. He's just and holy, and that offends his nature. And this one, any kind of rebellion against God's created order is a sin against his nature because he's the creator. And that particularly applies to human sexuality. God created us to be who we are because he's God and he chose to. And God created this world with men and women in it. And not a multitude of other things. There are men and there are women. And God defined as God what our roles are as men and women. He gets the right to do that, not us. And so if we break what God created in his created order and, and people in the world decide to be something else other than what God created them to be, which is male or female, then we offend God's character because he's the creator. And we can no more change those things than we can tell God we don't like gravity and we're going to get rid of it. Or I don't want to breathe air, so we're going to change it. No, he created the universe and it's according to his character. All sin is a transgression of the will of God. And we're all guilty of it. All we have to do is examine ourselves. But now listen to what John says. Here's the connection to the child of God. Look at verses five and six. Now for saved people, he says this. And you know that he was manifest, Jesus was manifest to take away our sins. And in him there is no sin. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Well, that's heavy-duty stuff. Let's take the first part. Number one, Jesus was manifest to take away our sin. Jesus came here from heaven, took on a human body, lived a sinless life, died on the cross, rose again the third day, and ascended back to heaven to take away our sin. Let that sink in for just a minute. To remove it. To take it away from us. Let me give you three ways that he did that very quickly. Number one, Jesus took away our sin because he removed the guilt of our sin. He removed our guilt. He took it upon himself. When Jesus died on the cross, he took the penalty for our sin. He took the penalty for our dishonesty, our rebellion, our lying, our greed, our anger, our hatred, every, every sin that was against his character. Jesus hung on the cross and paid the penalty for us. He took that away from us and gave us his righteousness. You see, God's law says, God's perfect law says that sin has to be paid for, that it isn't free. Because God's righteous and holy, he can't just sweep our sin under the rug and let us in the back door of heaven. Somebody had to pay for the sin. So Jesus came and first and foremost paid the penalty. Paul said in the first part of Romans 8.1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. If you're in Jesus, nobody can bring accusation against you. 
Oh, Satan can accuse you all day long, but it can't bring anything that'll stick because Jesus, our advocates at the right hand of the Father says, no, I saved him. I saved her. There's no more judgment against them. I paid their debt. They're free. That's a good place to be. Because again, if you're in the family of God, you're free of the debt of your sin. If you're in the world and you're lost, you have to pay for your sin. I would strongly suggest you come to Jesus and let him pay the debt because it's a debt you can never pay and let him save you. So first of all, Jesus removed our sin by paying for the, the guilt of it, the debt of it, the, the payment of it. <clears throat> Secondly, and, and just as important, Jesus not only took our sin away in our guilt, but he took it away in that he enables us to have victory over it. Because you're in Jesus Christ, there's no sin in your life that God can't give you the victory over. Amen. None. You say, well, pastor, there's some, there's some really tough areas in my life. Man, I, I, can, I can relate. Trust me, I can relate. You whatever, you know, it's kind of like that thing. You tell me how bad your foot's hurt and I'm gonna tell you mine's hurt worse, okay? I, mean, I, I can relate, okay? You, whatever sin it is that eats your lunch, whatever the weak areas in your life, whatever that thing is, I got the same thing probably in another area of my life or maybe the same area. But I can tell you by personal testimony and I can tell you based on the authority of God's word that there's not a sin in your life, there's not a weakness in your life, there's not a habit in your life that God can't take away because he's strong enough if you want him to take it away. And there is the connection. If we want him to take it away, if we're serious with God about doing business with him and getting rid of the sin, because when Jesus died on the cross, not only did he forgive us for the debt of the sin, but he gave us the power and victory over the sin in practical living, not perfection, not perfection, but power to overcome those things that, that trouble us. The degree, now listen to me, the degree of our practical obedience, the degree of our practical victory in the Christian life is directly proportional to the degree of our surrender to him. Everybody getting that? If we're going to be victorious in Christian life and live not like my friend in the Navy, but live in victory over sin, it's directly connected to how surrendered we are to Jesus. You see, too often, here's how we live. Thank you, Jesus, for forgiving me for the guilt of my sin. I'm in heaven. Oh, but the victory part, hmm, you know, I'm still living here and, uh, you know, I'm going to choose, I'm going to hang on to some stuff. And that's why Christians struggle. That's why we struggle, because we hang on to it. So Jesus died on the cross to take away our sin. He took away the guilt, took away the penalty, cleared the record, Stand before God one day, completely no condemnation. He, he gave us the victory over sin. He took it away so we can live victorious. And thirdly, he gave us an example. Jesus lived a sinless life while he was here in, in complete surrender to the Father and said, hey, do like I did. Be completely surrendered to the Father and walk with him. And Jesus said, I can't do anything but the Father tell me to do it. I can't do anything but what the Father told me to do. That's how we should live. You say, well, that's impossible in this Christian life. I know we'll never attain perfection, but that's the goal. That's the goal. Don't set your Christian goal down here. Don't say, well, I'm going to be a Christian and I'll just allow a little bit of sin and most of my sin I'll get rid of and I'll hang on a little bit. No, set your goal to sinlessness. And though we never can achieve it in this life, that should be the goal. That should be what we're shooting for. So, Jesus forgave the guilt, 
gave us victory over it and served as our example. Now let's deal with verse six, which is the one everybody wants to deal with. Notice what he says here. Whoever abides, pause, stop. There's the, there's the key that unlocks this verse. Whoever abides, what do we say the context was? Abiding, walking with Jesus, in his word, praying, communion with God, in the fellowship of the church. Notice what he says. Whoever abides in him does not sin. Whoever sins has neither seen him nor known him. Let me tell you first what this verse does not say. Let's just begin with the negative and then I'll tell you what it does say. This verse has been taken out of context by some folks who go, look, Christians can reach a sinless perfection in life because it says right here, whoever abides in them does not sin. I'm gonna tell you two reasons why we know that's not true. One, the first one's good hermeneutics. You never allow one verse in the Bible to contradict all the doctrine in the rest of the Bible. Everybody follow me? You read a verse and you go, wow, that verse seems to, seems to say something really extraordinary. Every verse in the Bible has an immediate context, which in this case is abiding, and we'll talk about that in a minute. And every verse in the Bible has a broader context, which fits the whole chapter, the book, and the rest of the Bible. Now we know in good hermeneutics that we take the preponderance of the Bible's teaching to establish doctrines because God wrote the Bible and the doctrine will be the same all the way throughout. So when you come to a verse like this and somebody reads this verse and they go, look, pastor, it says right here that Christians can be sinless. So at some point I can be sinless in this life. I can say, no, that's an errant interpretation because John said in 1 John chapter 1, verses eight to 10, just two chapters back, if you wanna go back and look at it, remember what he said? If we say we have no sin, what? We deceive ourselves and the truth's not in us. So now you got a problem, don't you? Because the same guy who wrote this verse wrote 1 John 1, 8, 9, and 10, who said, if we say we don't have any sin, we're deceiving ourselves and the truth's not in us. And he says, if we confess our sins, and he's talking to Christians, he's faithful and just to forgive us of all our sins and cleanse us of our unrighteousness. So you say, well, why it looks like the Bible's contradictory. No, it's not. Listen, what John's saying here in verse six is simply this. He who abides in Christ truly is sinless. Not practically all the time, but let me give you the two ways that we can be sinless. Number one, we are positionally sinless in Jesus all the time. God the Father looks at us as sinless. We don't have any sin before God the Father. So if I'm in Jesus and abiding means dwelling in him, I'm in him positionally, I am sinless. By the way, so are you if you're in Jesus and that's the only way you're getting into heaven. So you can be thankful that you are sinless in Jesus Christ because no sin will ever enter heaven. Now you say, well, yeah, but what about practically? Well, that's where it gets a little difficult. And here's the answer to that. When you and I, as Christians today, abide in Christ completely, and we are, we are completely surrendered to him, we are in that, in that time right with Jesus and we're not sinning. When we're not abiding in Jesus, which we are all wanting to do many times a day, we are sinning. We always sin. So he, John's not wrong here. He who's abiding in Christ is sinless. We're positionally sinless. And when we are fully abiding in Christ and we don't pursue sin, doesn't mean we're practically perfect in this life. Everybody following that? John's not saying we can attain some kind of perfect lifestyle here, but abiding in Christ does make us sinless for all the reasons we just said, positionally sinless, and it can practically move us to holiness in this life. And that's what John's saying, abiding in Christ. So I guess I could sum it up and say this, 
how, how eager are we to abide in Christ? How eager are we to be in the Bible, commune with them, confess our sin as we know it, abide in Christ, walk with him every day, walk in fellowship with him? It's hard because this flesh, this, this flesh is, is drawn to every sin and temptation in the world but abiding in Christ sets us free from that. Here's what, what one writer said, and I quote, he said, for the believer, sin is abnormal and unnatural. His whole bent of life is away from sin. That's a great quote. For the Christian, sin is abnormal and unnatural. To abide in Christ is to not be sinning, to be holy and righteous. Not perfect here, not sinless here, but to abide in Christ certainly moves us to that degree. My friend in the Navy didn't understand that. He, uh, he said he was a Christian, but none of, his, none of his lifestyle gave it evidence that he was one in Christ, abiding in him as saved, or that it had any effect on his life. So biblically, we can say abiding in Christ moves us to holiness, moves us to righteousness. Not abiding in Christ leads the other way. And then John finishes this passage that I want us to look at this morning by, by talking about the seriousness of sin. Now, here's why this is important. In our society today, and, and even among Christianity to a certain degree, sin, the seriousness of sin has been diminished. And I'll give you a couple of reasons why it's been diminished. Number one, in the church itself, many in the younger generation don't want to hear about sin. And to preach about sin drives people away. And so in our, in our great fervor to think we have successful churches in the 21st century, we don't want to say anything that doesn't draw the crowds. And so we want to do whatever makes the most people come to church. But here's the problem with that. Nowhere in the Bible has God ever diminished the fact of how bad sin is even after we're saved. And so sin is not a, a, a thing that we go, oh, well, I sinned, so I'm just going to ask God to forgive me. I had someone say to me one time, this person was going to leave their mate. They were going to divorce them. And so I was talking to them before, before this happened. And I said to them, I said, I'm pleading with you to really pray and seek the face of God. And these were two Christian people, and they were going to divorce I said, God doesn't want this for your family. The Bible's clear. God doesn't want this for your family. There's, there's no unfaithfulness here. Neither one of you has cheated on the other. You just need to get on your knees before God, and, and you, need to, you need to get this right. And the person said to me, I'm going to do it and ask God to forgive me later. Now listen, what is that an example of? That is an example of a diminished view of how serious sin is. That's what that is. That's a person who's saying, well, you know what? I'm just going to go ahead and choose a sin right now and God will forgive me later. And I said, yes, fortunately for us, God will forgive us when we ask him. I said, but you're about to bring a world of hurt into your life, into the life of your children, into the life of the mate that you're, you're going to divorce. I said, you're going to bring a world, you're going to reap the whirlwinds, what's going to happen? Well, I've known the person for a long time and guess what happened? Disaster after disaster, because sin, listen to me, sin is not a light matter. It's not, it's not a thing to be glossed over. I'll tell you the second reason. Not only is it diminished in the church, it's diminished in society. 
Nobody wants to talk about sin. Nobody wants you to mention sin. To tell somebody that they're, that, you know, hey, these choices you're making in your life are sin before God, they get angry. They don't want to hear that. They don't want to hear it. Sin has been, has been reduced to nothing today. Listen to what John says in verses seven and eight. Listen to this. Little children, my fellow believers, let no one deceive you. Don't be sucked into that. Don't be drawn into that. He who practices righteousness is righteous just as he is righteous. He who sins is of the devil, for the devil has sinned from the beginning. For this purpose, the Son of God was manifested that he might destroy the works of the devil. You get what John's saying there? He's saying, first of all, the little children, Christians, do not be deceived by false teachers and the false ideas that go around in the world today about sin. You see, in John's day, there were false teachers. There were Gnostics, and there were people who came along and said to the Christians, look, what's really important about you is your spiritual man. Your physical body doesn't mean anything. You can do whatever you want to physically in the world, and it doesn't affect the spiritual man. Well, that's completely opposite of what the Apostle Paul said and what the rest of the New Testament says. No, we are saved in totality and our lifestyle is to reflect our relationship with Jesus. And therefore, John said, don't be deceived because sin is a big deal. In fact, it was such a big deal, Jesus left heaven to die for it. Amen. If it wasn't a big deal, God wouldn't have went to all that trouble to make the only payment that could be made for it. So John said, don't be deceived into thinking that sin is not a big deal. And I would say to us today, to me and to you, let us not be sucked into the world's view of sin and think, well, I can just go out and do these things or live this lifestyle or make these choices that are offensive to God and it's no big deal. No, it's a big deal. And God, God is offended by our sin. And if you love Jesus Christ, if you're saved and I'm saved and we say that we love God, we sang the song, Oh, how I love Jesus. If we can stand here and sing the song, Oh, how I love Jesus, then why in the world would we want to offend him with our lifestyle? Why in the world would we want to offend him with the things that we do or the things that we say? I don't want to. And it should hurt your heart when you fail him. And it hurts my heart when I fail him. Why? Because I do love him. Why? Because he loved me first. We love God because he loved us first. So sin is a big deal. Number two, the devil sinned in the beginning. That's where it all started. He says it right here in verse eight. God created Satan. He was a covering cherub. He decided one day he wanted to be like God. He wanted to sit in the seat of God, if you will. He wanted to be God. Well, nobody can be God. There's only God. And everything else is created. And so Satan's sin, there was pride in his heart. And by the way, here's a whole other sermon. Pride was the first sin in the universe. And what does man eat up with? Pride. What causes us to sin? Pride. What makes us choose our will over God's will? Pride. Arrogance. We think we're God and he's not. Same sin of Satan, okay? So Satan brought the first sin in the world. He sinned from the beginning. And then John said it was the purpose of Jesus to come, listen, and destroy the works of Satan. You know what Jesus did? He reversed everything that Satan broke. He fixed it. He came, repaired all the spiritual damage that, that Satan brought, and all we have to do is put our faith in Jesus and ask him to forgive us and save us. And God restores all that Satan broke. Satan was the first sin. And listen, it takes us back to what we said in the beginning as we close. There are two spiritual families in the world. There's God's family, all those who are born again by faith in Jesus Christ, and then there's Satan's family, which is all the lost of the world. 
Jesus himself said there are two paths to walk in this life. Two. One of them's really wide and it's big and it has a big gate and everybody's going down that road. And if you like to go with the crowds and like to go with the customs of society and you like to agree with what everybody says is okay, just get on that road and walk with them. The problem with that is, Jesus said the end of that road is destruction. Death. Why? Because it's a road of sin. It's a road of rebellion against God. Jesus said, but there's another path and it's smaller, it's narrow. And there's a little gate. And it's the, it's the way to righteousness. And Jesus said, I'm the door. He's the gate. You come in through Jesus and you walk on that path. You walk the narrow way, which is living a life that reflects Jesus Christ. And he said, that path leads to life everlasting. Well, which family are you in this morning? Which family are you in online? Are you in the world? Are you buying into the world's lies and deception? Or do you believe God? Do you believe the one who came to pay for our sin? Listen, the Christian nature is this. If you tell me you're saved and I tell you I'm saved, then by George, there ought to be some evidence in my life that says I am. Not perfection, but something that, that shows on the outside that I want to be like Jesus. And listen, that path, that, that degree of being like Jesus is different for everybody. I've seen people get saved, man, they're like a rocket. They, man, they get in the Bible and suddenly they go from being lost to being saved and man, you can't get them away from church. Then I've seen some people get saved and they just on a slow boat to, you know, I get there. But that's okay because all God's children are different. All of them grow different. But if there's no evidence at all in your life and you look like the devil Maybe it's because you have the very nature of whose family you're in and you ought to do some self-examination in your heart and make sure you're right. I had to tell my friend in the Navy, I said, not only do I doubt that you're saved, but I'm pretty sure by the evidence in your life, you really don't know Jesus, to which he was greatly offended. Now, if he was saved, maybe I just stirred him up. I don't know. Maybe I just made him mad. I don't know. But if he wasn't saved, I had to be honest with him. To me, you're like, you, don't, you don't look like you're saved, certainly by the things that you do. So where are you at this morning? Would you come to Jesus today? Would you examine your own heart? Make sure that you are saved. Make sure, make sure that you're in the family of God today. Let's pray. Father, thank you for the clarity of your word and how it just really draws a line and cuts straight. And God, we have to decide. Lord, are we going to be in your family or are we going to follow the world? God, I know I fail you every day. And every, every child of yours in this room and watching online has to say the same thing. Lord, my life is far less than what it ought to be. But God, it's far more than it used to be because of you. So God, I pray today. If there's somebody here under the hearing of your word and they their life is a contradiction to their profession. God, they're living in rebellion against you with some lifestyle, with some sinful choices, with the way they live. God, they have rebelled against you. God, draw them today. Convict them, Lord. You do the work in their heart that only you can do. God, I ask you that they would confess their sin today and ask for your forgiveness. You came to forgive our sin and to take it away. And God, put them on the right path. Get them on the right way. 
that, God, they can honor you and live for you. Give us boldness as your children to live the life we should live in the power of the Holy Spirit. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. Stand as we sing. I'll be glad to pray with you or answer your questions or help you. You come on the first verse. The Savior is waiting to finishing psalms tonight. We're going to do the last part of 149 and 150. And uh, let me invite you back as we conclude our study in the book of Psalms tonight. All right, let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this morning, for the worship, for the time of singing. And I pray that it honored you. And I pray, God, for your word, that it would uh, convict us, Lord, and draw us close. We pray it in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen.